Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First, Rodrigo Nunes and J.R. Bolsonaro, the authoritarian pseudo-populist president of Brazil, one of several exemplars of a trend sweeping the world. Trump may be going, but that style of politics certainly isn't. Nunes will help us understand the appeal of order over law, of denialism over truth. At the end of the show, a short interview with Francis Gill on a coalition in New Orleans that helped thwart the mayor's scheme to take money from libraries and pour it into a gentrification slush fund. First, Brazil, though it's not just Brazil. Jair Bolsonaro, a failed army officer and longtime member of that country's Congress, ran for president in 2018 and won. His appeal was very like Trump's, rude, crude, and pseudo-populist, and rhetoric aside, very much in service to the rich. Bolsonaro succeeded two presidents from the Workers' Party, known as the PT from its initials in Portuguese, Luiz Ignacio da Silva, Lula, and Dilma Rousseff. Lula's time in office was mostly successful, powered in part by a commodity boom, thanks to Chinese demand, that left the country flush with money. Lula's government shared some of that money with the country's poor, and there was a notable reduction in poverty. He was succeeded by Rousseff, a much less gifted politician who had to cope with the end of the commodity boom and a major economic crisis. Brazil's elite, which never liked the PT government, orchestrated a parliamentary coup against Rousseff, and she was impeached in 2016. At the same time, an investigation known as Operation Carwash revealed details of the deep corruption of the political system, an investigation that was biased against the PT. Lula was sent to jail, though he was later released. Much of the Brazilian establishment was revealed to be on the take, and mass popular revulsion was unleashed, which Bolsonaro was able to trade on. How does a pseudo-populist, whose ultimate appeal is to the rich, manage to convince the masses that he's their guy? That, among other things, is a question that Rodrigo Nunes addresses. He is a professor of modern and contemporary philosophy at the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro. He's the author of Organization of the Organizationalist, published by Mute in 2014, and his new book, Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, will be out from Verso next spring. He's one of the contributors to the Public Book Symposium, whose editor, Tom Segru, I interviewed last week. Nunes's essay asks, Are we in denial about denial? A question we address at the end of the interview. The paper I refer to is forthcoming in the journal Radical Philosophy. Rodrigo Nunes. What about the relation between Bolsonaro and the movement, Bolsonarismo? Did he create it? Did it find him? What was the order of operations there? Both things. We need to understand these two things as developing in a a circular relation to one another. So in a way, the name Bolsonarismo names retrospectively a movement or a a process that had already been going for a few years. Some of it had been going for uh, as far back since the start of uh, Lula's first term in power, because that was the moment when... uh, the traditional right wing started mainstreaming lots of things from the far right and from the the religious far right. For a long time, I guess, the traditional right wing who was uh, mainstreaming these things expected that they were going to be the ones to reap the benefits from it. But what happens with Operation Car Wash from 2015 onwards and then the impeachment of uh, Dilma Rousseff is the old right gets caught up in that vortex because they were involved in the corruption scandals and Petrograd as well. So eventually there is this huge situation of institutional meltdown and a vacuum that gets occupied by a figure from the far right. And obviously the moment it becomes this figure from the far right that becomes the one to galvanize and lead those processes, then that pulls the whole thing even further out to the right. This is a guy who ran as an outsider, but was a congressman for what, 25 or 30 years? (laughs) How did he pull that off? (laughs) 
by having been mediocre up until that point, like, he never passed a bill in all his time in Congress. And uh, he'd always been a very uh, marginal figure. And actually, one of the ways in which he started becoming popular in, or started becoming well-known and popular in the last decade is comparable to Trump. People liked him. People invited him to TV shows and radio shows and things like that because he had, quote-unquote, polemical opinions. He was always good copy or he was always good TV because he was always going to say something outrageous. And obviously that's good for ratings. So people kept inviting him to TV shows and he started becoming better known as this like straight talker, straight shooter figure who at a moment when starting from the 2013 protests and then becoming even more acute from 2015 onwards with the uh, corruption scandals uncovered by Operation Car Wash. That was a moment of extreme distrust of the political elite as a whole and of the, the political system that had existed in Brazil since the redemocratization. And this guy not only was a completely, even though he'd been there pretty much for that whole time, he was not only a completely marginal figure in that, but also he represented the memory of what came before the redemocratization process, i.e. he represented this uh, completely idealized, mythical idea of um, the military dictatorship as having been a time when there was no corruption, when uh, everyone knew their place, where there was economic prosperity, etc., etc. So he was really well positioned to play on all of that. Like Trump, he gets points for violating the canons of political correctness, right? Absolutely, yes. And I think that was something it's taken people a really long time to appreciate. In having watched the whole process unfold in the US in 2016, it was really painful to watch it unfold again in Brazil in 2018. And I happened to be living in the US at the time when the 2018 elections in Brazil happened. And to see like the way the left tried to leverage these uh, outrageous statements as if they were going to hurt him when that was precisely part of his, both the fact that he was outraging the libs, but also the fact that in in a world of uh, very well-manicured, media-trained political figures, he was this straight talker, outsider, who was going to put an end to all that uh, nonsense of the political class. To see the way in which people were, like they did in, like the Hillary campaign did in 2016, they were playing right into the hands of Bolsonaro by trying to use that sort of thing against him. That was absolutely painful. As with uh, Trump and the US, it's hard sometimes to separate the fact that he comes out of a long political tradition in the US that produced somebody like him. Um, he's not a radical change from American history, but he is a change in some sense. Uh, and I imagine, too, with Bolsonaro, there are continuities and discontinuities. Um, how, how do we separate those things out? How much of an innovation does he represent and how much of it is just um, the same old and somewhat different form? Yeah, both in the case of uh, Bolsonaro and, and Trump, you could say that they there's some really old traditions, but also uh, fantasies and fears uh, that they connect to, that they are a, a continuation of, but also a new um, expression, a new flowering of. What's different is the broader conditions that makes it possible for those things to come back the way they did. And in both the US and in Brazil, I think one of the one of the things that was really eye-opening about the emergence of those two was the fact that it really completely put paid to a progressive narrative of history that saw, what was that quote that Obama loved, the arc of history tends towards justice, 
or the idea in, in Brazil that, yes, we have now finally achieved institutional maturity and political forces are not going to just suddenly start pushing each other around and trying to decide by force who gets to, to do what. It was different in the sense that I don't think anyone was expecting these activisms to come back in the way they did. The reason why they did come back are new in the sense that you could mostly trace them back to the fallout of the 2008 crisis in, in several different ways. But also what is new, I guess, is these political forces were, by virtue of being, being outsiders at, at that moment, were the first on to cotton on to some of the affordances offered by social media, by the media ecosystem that we have nowadays. And they, they were very good at exploiting those at the same time. You can't just say they were successful because they were prepared to lie or they were prepared to use Facebook, WhatsApp, etc. to spread misinformation. It's also because that misinformation was telling people something. It was also because it made sense to people in, in some way that they were successful. In your paper, uh, you uh, point to several uh, factors in Bolsonaro's rise in his popularity. One, uh, the law and order appeal, and another, anti-intellectualism. But you also point out that that takes different forms, whether it's upper class or uh, working class. Yet somehow mm -hmm. Bolsonaro is able to bridge those two forms. Could you talk about the, the bifurcations and commonalities of those appeals? It's very clear that something like the, the law and order discourse, it's very clear that in a place that is as unequal as Brazil, that means very different things depending on your position in the social structure. For people living in, in poor areas in the big urban centers of Brazil, a law and order discourse means you won't fear for your life every time you leave the house because there may be a massive shootout between the police and the local drug faction. Just to be clear, these are not phantasms. These are real I mean it's really violent and dangerous. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. In places like Korea and Sao Paulo, but also increasingly in all the capitals in the northeast and in the north of Brazil. Yeah, yeah, these are absolutely true. Cab drivers are a great example of that because cab drivers often live in those areas and obviously their entire livelihood is dependent on that one piece of property, which is their car. So if you tell them, I'll put police on the streets to make sure that your car doesn't get stolen. That's that's obviously a big thing uh, for them. But it's very clear that for um, the upper class voters who supported Bolsonaro, and this is a very important thing to bear in mind, when he starts being mentioned in the polls, he's already at something like 12%. And if you look at the breakdown of that 12%, it's the highest income bracket. If you're a poor person living in a poor area, you have a fairly good idea of who are the quote-unquote hardworking people in the area and who are the criminals. If you're rich, you don't care. What you want is for the poor to be kept away from the part of town where you live. And your idea of uh, what's disposable life is much broader, obviously, than someone living in a poor area would think, because in their case, disposable life could include themselves or their families, who are often the victims of uh, indiscriminate police violence. In the same way, the discourse around uh, entrepreneurialism, that one is one that's very uh, interesting, the different ways in which it plays out. I'm speaking with Rodrigo Nunes, a professor of philosophy at the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro. You talk about a, a neoliberalism from below, which is a very interesting concept. We're all very familiar with neoliberalism from above, but what is this neoliberalism from below? Veronica Gago, who's a, an Argentinian sociologist, develops this concept in a, a book that came out a couple of years ago in which she's talking about Argentina, but you, you could apply pretty much everything that she's saying to Brazil, 
Maybe one difference, which maybe doesn't play out in Argentina as strongly as it does in Brazil, is she doesn't talk at all about the role of uh, neo-Pentecostal prosperity gospel in, in producing that neoliberalism from below. That's definitely a huge factor in in Brazil. What she means by neoliberalism from below is she describes it at some point as a vital strategy that poor people develop in order to live within a world that's being reconfigured by neoliberalism from above. Seeing yourself as an entrepreneur who's uh, navigating different flows in search for better utility, conceiving of oneself of one's own uh, activity and life strategies in neoliberal terms is both an advantage uh, if you're trying to survive in an environment that's been reconfigured in that way, but also ultimately it becomes second nature, an ambivalent uh, second nature. She's She's very careful not to to paint that in exclusively negative terms. She She thinks there is something positive in the way that people are finding their own strategies and ways to, to navigate these things. But as they do so, they mostly conceive of themselves in neoliberal terms. So they see themselves as uh, entrepreneurs. When the government is talking about the, the opposition between the contradiction between workers and entrepreneurs, they actually perceive themselves as being on the second side of that um, equation. It's, that's definitely been a factor in the support for Bolsonaro among the poor. I noticed you uh, cite Jennifer Silva, whose book I read and interviewed her about. I was impressed by the way that the subject that she interviewed had internalized the whole idea that you're responsible Absolutely. for yourself and that there's just no solidarity. You can't trust in politics. You can't really trust in anyone else. It's all on you to succeed, which I thought of as a very American attitude, but apparently uh, it is also a, a Latin American attitude as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a history coming back in a new way because obviously the subjects that... Um, that Veronica Gago is talking about in Argentina, many of them are Bolivian migrants and were people who in in Bolivia and now again after they've migrated to Argentina. But you could say the same thing about the people living in the peripheries of Brazil who are obviously in their vast majority descendants from slaves. These people have always had to survive in the margins, there is a strong sense of uh, self-reliance, of, you know, having to make do with what you've got, which does get translated to some extent in also uh, reliance on your community and has a, a more collective sense. A lot of that has been absorbed by the churches now, by the, the Pentecostal churches who provide precisely that level of uh, community support in in places where the state doesn't provide that has never provided that, but then that gets combined once neoliberalism is introduced in the nineties, and obviously with the absolute takeover of uh, public discourse by neoliberal discourse by those narratives, those ways of perceiving people and those ways of uh, through which people can perceive themselves as being and acting in the world, those two things get combined. It's ourselves for ourselves, as people say in, in the peripheries of Brazil. That get, gets combined with a very neoliberalized notion of uh, self-reliance, of self-entrepreneurship, Etc. Another crucial part of the Bolsonaro appeal is appeal to social conservatism uh, and a contempt for what is perceived as, you know, I guess, elite decadence. Where did that come from? Is this got deep roots, or is this uh, come with the the Pentecostals? And how does that fit into the, the the structure of Bolsonaro? Obviously, that has long roots. Brazil having long been a society with very deep traditional rural roots. But that is definitely something that that kind of discourse, it starts picking up in the 80s with one of the first 
Pentecostal churches to go into politics full time, they realize that that is something. Obviously, I imagine at the time they're looking at the U.S. and they can see the Pentecostal right in the U.S. leveraging that discourse in order to get votes and build political power. And they start doing that. And then other evangelical churches start doing that. But at some point, when when things were going really well for Lula and uh, PT, there was a moment when there really wasn't anything you could say against uh, PT. You couldn't try and convince people the PT governments had been bad for them because that was clearly factually wrong. Everyone was living better than they were before PT came to power. But the upper class hated it, right? Yes, yes. That's two things that start happening at that point. What are the two discourses that can hurt the left at that point? You can't say that the economy is bad because it isn't. You can't say that education is bad because it's actually improving. There's been massive investment in that. What you've got that could hurt the left is the social conservative discourse, which then the center right or the traditional right start mainstreaming from the far right and the Pentecostal right and Cold War paranoia. And Cold War paranoia starts getting played really heavily by the mainstream media. So the the absolutely insane anti-communist frenzy that you will find from 2015 onwards in the Brazilian upper class, that had actually been whipped up for um, 10 years at the very at the very least even though the the upper class in Brazil they they were having a great time with Lula or with uh, PT but what happens from 2014 15 onwards is both the economy starts going down and the huge corruption scandals uh, start coming start being brought into the light And that creates an opportunity for that Cold War discourse that had been there since 2003 to suddenly connect the two things and say, oh, you see, this is what communism does. Look at Venezuela. What you get with the left is always a highly corrupt, economically ineffective government. And this is what's happening with the the Venezuelization of um, Brazil, with the, the fact that you have these two crises at the same time is evidence that Brazil is becoming like Venezuela, and that turns into like this seriously paranoid uh, frenzy on the part of uh, of the Brazilian upper class that leads to also plays very strongly into um, into um, Bolsonaro's political rise. Now, the right is very clever at uh, this con in which uh, you say at one point that uh, in some sense the, the modal Bolsonaro supporter is a failed businessman. But then there are also these people in the working class who are just have nothing and are looking forward to less. They're able to blame that anxiety uh, over loss where the real experience of loss, they blame that on people like lesbians and gay people or women or, or minorities or migrants. How does that work? How do they get away with that? In this paper that's uh, coming out soon with um, radical philosophy, I I point out this is the the classic thing that's described by um, Laclau as being the the essential, the basic move of populism is you set up what he calls an antagonistic frontier between we the people and the others that we are against, which means that you need a way of representing who we the people are, and you need a way of representing who the other on the the other side of the frontier is. So on this side, my friend uh, Isabella Khalil, who's an ethnographer who's done great work on the ethnography of Bolsonarism, she was the first to point out that the figure that unified the Bolsonarista camp was the figure of the upstanding citizen. That's how all these different uh, elements were connected in Bolsonarista discourse. Uh, So social conservatism, uh, law and order, entrepreneurialism, anti-communism, all of that is said of the upstanding citizen. 
On the other side of that, the great rhetorical invention of um, Bolsonarismo was the concept of mamata, which comes from uh, mamar to suckle, and was used by Bolsonarismo to describe absolutely everything. So from like very high up white collar crime to uh, affirmative action in universities, all of that is described by Bolsonaristas as mamata. There was a wave in, in the week before the second round of the election in 2018, there was a, a wave of homophobic attacks in all the the accounts of these attacks, one common trait was uh, the people who were threatening or beating up or throwing bottles at um, gay or, or trans people. They were shouting, the mamata is over. The good days are over. The days in which you could do whatever you wanted are over. I don't think that's been sufficiently appreciated in Brazil yet. Anti-corruption discourse had been there for a long time. You had the supposedly meritocratic upper-class discourse against affirmative action, which had been there for for a while too. You had socially conservative discourse. The idea of having a name by which you could call all those different things that those discourses were against. And all of these things could be identified by a single word which suggested all these people are getting uh, undue privileges, all these people are, they're getting an easy life because that's that would be a, another way of translating mamata. They're getting an easy life at our expense. These marginalized groups, if they get anything like recognition or increased rights, this is perceived as some kind of unfair incursion. Absolutely. Obviously, the the US and the UK were um, in the late 70s, early 80s, they were um, precursors of the political use of that resentment that those sorts of uh, progressive policies produce among the people who aren't who don't directly benefit from from them. And uh, there's no doubt that in Brazil, they've learned a lot from that playbook that was uh, obviously created in the late 70s, early 80s, but then was uh, revived, renewed very strongly in the last decade by people like Trump. I'm speaking with Rodrigo Nunes, a professor of philosophy at the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro. In the phrase law and order, it seems like a lot of these uh, uh, Bolsonaro and his supporters uh, prefer the order part to uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the law part. But there's a way also in which that even though as the, the patriarchal father, as patriarchal family has decreased in, in importance in the real world, there's somehow a way in which a figure like Bolsonaro or Trump represents that very punitive authoritarian father figure in the public sphere. Yeah, they actively play on this confusion. You could say that it's not a confusion. Someone like Carl Schmitt would say, well, that is what it is, that the sovereign is precisely that figure, which is at once the guarantee of uh, the legal order and outside of it. But they've been very good at playing on on precisely this uh, confusion or this gray area between a demand for order, but at the same time, this demand for order, which is perfectly legitimate in the sense that lots of people feel, especially in the wake of the 2008 crisis, that their lives have been turned upside down and they still haven't recovered from that. And there's no perspective on the horizon of ever recovering from that. On the contrary, it's like all the losses that were incurred then have just become part of reality for them now. So there is a hankering for something that was lost and maybe even going even farther back than the 2008 crisis, obviously in in the US is a hankering for safe industrial jobs um, back in the 70s, etc. But at the same time, this gets confused with uh, 
and and the the far right actively nurture and play on that confusion this gets confused with the loss of an order which was an order in which black people knew their place in which women knew their place in which gay and trans people knew their place so on and so forth so what you want is someone who's going to bring back the old order but in order to bring back the old order you have to basically ride roughshod over the opposition of all the social groups that have gained something in the meantime and that means that to some extent you have to go against the law you have to go against parliamentary process you have to go against due process so you need in order to bring back the law this becomes very clear in the law and order support for the militarization of police you are effectively and in brazil this is absolutely clear you are effectively supporting extrajudicial killings as a means of bringing back order so you are effectively supporting giving the police the right to break the law in order to bring back order and this is precisely what these figures like Trump and, and Bolsonaro represent is someone who's going to bring back order but the only way to bring back order is to break the law and to to stand above the law it's interesting uh, order is on the brazilian flag isn't it yes yes well that's you know where that comes from right no i don't to a large extent <laughs> the the brazilian republic was uh, the consequence of a um, positivist conspiracy that's the motto of positivism the motto is love as principle order as the basis and progress as the end so there's been a campaign for some time in brazil to bring love into uh, the flag because obviously they and it's very telling <laughs> that they eliminated uh, love from the motto and just kept order and progress That's yeah, it's too squishy. Now, uh, finally, the, the, the concept of denialism is very important, um, both to Trump and to Bolsonaro. Um, climate denialism, COVID denialism. Your liberal intellectual uh, rationalist will say, you know, but, 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 but. But there's some really important psychological mechanisms at work here that you just can't refute with uh, fact-checking, right? Exactly, yeah. So obviously, we have a lot of um, misinformation going about and we have uh, uh, the architecture of the media ecosystem we have nowadays favors all that misinformation that is available nowadays online and and not only and we know how for some time now we have discussed how misinformation works and we know why people buy into it we know that people are looking for the confirmation of their beliefs and uh, identity so it's their prior beliefs and identity that makes things plausible to them and not the other way around it's not that they necessarily base their beliefs and identity in what is plausible in the first place so we know that the processing of information is itself constrained by a number of cognitive biases but what we don't discuss is the fact that those biases respond to unconscious needs and the question we should be asking ourselves is what are the needs that the narratives that the far right offers meet my insight here which was it was actually something i i started thinking at the time when i was working on this piece on bolsonarismo for for um, radical philosophy and then it grew out into the piece that uh, came out in public books a couple of weeks ago my insight was simply to see the two different attitudes that we describe as denial on the one hand the conscious lies that uh, those people we describe as denialists like climate denialists or holocaust denialists or covid denialists the conscious lies that they tell on the one hand but on the other hand the unconscious disavowal of reality of those people that we describe as being in denial my basic idea is just to see those two things as two sides of uh, a system that stand in a feedback loop in relation to one another so unconscious disavowal creates a demand for the escapist 
narratives that are provided by conscious professional denialists. And the key here was just taking uh, Althusser's definition of ideology as the, the imaginary relationship of individuals to their real conditions of existence and asking, well, what happens when the real conditions of existence become increasingly traumatic, as is the case for us, we have like all these huge catastrophes looming in the horizon or just outside our field of vision all the time. If our real conditions of existence become increasingly traumatic, wouldn't that increase the need for disavowal, the need for being in denial for a flight into the imaginary? And wouldn't that in turn increase the demand for conscious denialism? So I wouldn't that increase the demand for and the, the viability of the misinformation that professional denialists spread? So my idea is basically to connect those two things. I, what I'm calling denialism is not only the misinformation spread, say, by the oil industry body about climate change or Holocaust deniers or COVID deniers, etc. But the system that's formed by those people peddling those lies and the demand that increasingly exists for those lies in a world where increasingly disavowal becomes a necessity because what we're facing is incredibly and increasingly dark. Humankind cannot bear very much reality, as T.S. Eliot said. I just have to say, I, I, I'm often in awe of the right's ability to spin out these coherent and persuasive fantasy structures. The left just has nothing to compete with that. I mean, we really need to up our game. Absolutely. Yeah. There is one sense in which the right is always going to have the upper hand, which is its narratives will always tend to be in greater continuity with reality, precisely because they're not trying to change reality that much or that they're, they're working with the grain of reality they're following the direction in which things are going just trying to accelerate it or uh, inflect its direction somewhat whereas the left unfortunately for us is forced to try and go against the grain somewhat i think this concept of neoliberalism from below is a great example of that we are forced to, to try and present an alternative account when this account, the fact that seeing themselves as neoliberal subjects becomes second nature to many people, in many ways offers them advantages in a neoliberal world. So yeah, there is, there is a certain way there in which, in which we'll always be at a disadvantage in relation to to the right but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try harder we definitely we definitely have done a very uh, bad job of, of fighting those narratives with other narratives that project different things and actually address the real problems behind all of this because at the end of the day the picture that the far right tells is also very dark so it, it recognizes the darkness of our present predicament in, in ways that your average liberal often will not because they will try to, to say that, oh, this is just a blip and things will get better soon. But the way they do that is at the same time as they address this atmospheric dread that people increasingly live in, it promises that oh, the, the causes for this are fairly simple. You know, it's the migrants, it's gay people, it's snowflakes, etc. And therefore, the fixes are relatively simple. And I guess that's the other problem that we have. We actually have to convince people that the fixes aren't simple and it's going to take a lot of hard work and a lot of uh, upheaval to the way things are nowadays in order to uh, avoid the worst. And obviously not many people want to hear that. That was Rodrigo Nunes, a professor of modern and contemporary philosophy at the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro.
He's one of the contributors to a symposium on the politics of COVID-19 on the Public Books website. His book, Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, will be out from Verso next spring. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the second movement of Beethoven's string trio in E-flat major, Opus 3, performed by the Grumio Trio. Ludwig's 250th is coming up next week, and this is by way of an early celebration. And now look at an electoral victory for the left in New Orleans, where voters rejected a proposal by Mayor Latoya Cantrell to shift money away from libraries and towards an economic development slush fund. A large, diverse coalition came together to fight the move and won. Here's Francis Gill, an activist with the New Orleans chapter of Democratic Socialists of America, one of the organizations in that coalition, to tell us what happened. Tell me a bit about uh, the New Orleans DSA. Um, how are you doing? How big are you? And uh, what kind of issues are you focusing on? We are getting bigger. We've been around for about four years now, and we have a little over 500 members. And we have a variety of different committees within the chapter that take on different projects. So we have like a healthcare committee that does Medicare for All organizing, and we have a, a service committee, a direct service committee that does our brake light clinics, although we're not doing those because of COVID. We have a labor committee called Worker Power Louisiana that does labor issues and labor organizing. Um, and then we have a municipal action committee that does local politics and make, writes our voter guide and stuff. New Orleans generally, from far away, uh, the impression was that Katrina really transformed the city and uh, a lot of the poor people left and uh, it became more of a tourist playground. Is that true? With the caveat that I've only lived here for five years. So I wasn't living here during Hurricane Katrina, but I <laughs> would say, yes, it's definitely, definitely true. Uh, and there's still a lot of poor people in New Orleans. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the city has like areas, neighborhoods that are kind of rapidly gentrifying and a lot of people have been displaced and pushed out. And what has COVID done to the city? How, how bad is it and what's it done? New Orleans got hit early with COVID. So we were one of the like hot spots of the outbreak early on. So we saw this huge, huge increase in cases that like in other cities was borne disproportionately by people of color. Since then, like the, we've definitely done a, I feel like New Orleans has done a pretty good job of um we went into lockdown, we did the whole thing, everyone wears their mask, things have stabilized a lot, but there's still a pandemic on. Now, tell us about this library proposal. It looked like she was um, trying to switch money out of the library budget and shift it to God knows what, um, And uh, but while well, claiming that wasn't the case. So what, what, what exactly mm -hmm. was she proposing? Yeah, so basically this was like a total bait and switch. The library in New Orleans um, is funded by something called a millage, which I think is like somewhat unique to New Orleans. But it's basically like a dedicated property tax. So it's like a dedicated property tax. And there's two of them that dedicates money specifically to the library system. And um, one of them is, is about to expire at the end of 2021. And so there was this proposal that the mayor and city council put on the ballot that would have cut that money by 40% and reallocated it to other funding streams within the city. So it would have taken like one dedicated millage and turned it into three millages, decreased library funding, and then put it to this economic development slush fund. The case that she was making, or the case that was being made about this millage, was that um, the library has too much money, which it totally does not, um, and we need money for early childhood education, which we totally 100% do. But for every $5 that they were cutting the library, only $1 was going to early childhood education. And there was like no plan for how that money would actually 
move dedicated to early childhood education. So um, it was basically like devastate the library system to get like 100 seats in this early childhood education program, maybe. And the rest would go to this economic development slush fund. You would think that cutting libraries by claiming they were overfunded would not be a, a, a winning right. position to take politically. And it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, how did people take this? People were really pissed. People love the libraries. And we had just passed this millage, in, or the, the, there's one of two millages that was being affected. The other one we had just passed in 2015. So just a few years ago, the city voted like overwhelmingly to increase funding to the library. So it was like definitely not a popular position. And also the reason the library like has excess money in their reserves is because we just voted on that increase. So like they, it took like a couple of years to like ramp up spending. So they have a little bit of money, but it's just a reflection of like, A, they've been good balancing their budget and B, the people of the city has already said, have already said that we want the libraries to be fully funded. What about your coalition? Who is in it? And uh, how did you approach this campaign? I got involved with the coalition through New Orleans DSA. Basically, it was a coalition of tons of different organizations, so different like community organizations and labor unions and the Friends of the New Orleans Public Library, which is like this you know group of people that supports the library system. One of the first things that we did was we tried to make inroads into organized labor in the city and reach out to different labor unions because it was like a labor issue. If the millage had passed and the library got cut by like 40 percent, then all these librarians would have almost certainly lost their jobs. Now, weirdly, the uh, the library was claiming that they could absorb a 40 percent budget cut and you wouldn't even notice. Right. Yep. Yep. Well, you know, they started saying that once they started getting pushback, but earlier interviews had, they had been very clear that like a 40 percent cut is like not sustainable. Because the library operates like almost at its full budget. It has some reserves, but it uses like its full operating budget pretty much. So we definitely would have had like layoffs and closures and cuts to services. And they were trying to say that that wasn't going to happen, but it was definitely going to happen. They need their full budget in order to operate at their full capacity. Okay. And so the labor unions, who else was in this coalition? Friends of the library and people like that? Yeah. Friends of the libraries and community organizations. Um, this group called Black to the Table this group called Vela that works with the Vietnamese community in New Orleans East. I couldn't even list them all because there's like 30 plus organizations. We tried to reach out to voters that were near at-risk libraries. We tried to do kind of special outreach to those neighborhoods. It all came together really fast. So we're kind of building this plane as we're flying it, but we just tried to build as big, big and strong coalition as we possibly could. Did you do door-to-door canvassing or is that not possible in, in COVID days? We did um, just like lit drops. We would leave just flyers at doors, um, which I think worked better because A, a lot safer because of the pandemic, and then B, we could just cover a lot more ground. And so what was the result? Uh, you won, but uh, how big a victory was it? Yeah, I mean, it was a big victory. Like, And the exciting part was that we lost early voting, like 52% to 48% or something like that. And we won the overall vote by like 57 to 43. So you could really see this tangible difference between like, because it all came together like in a month, basically. And so you could really see this tangible difference from like people who voted before we had like really gotten our message out there and really had our like ground game going and we're like doing all this voter contact and people who voted on election day. Yeah, I think a lot of Yankees, of course, would look down at, uh, you know, in the South as a, a possible um, field for progressive organizing. How do you feel after this campaign? Is, uh, do you feel like uh, you've got some future there? I definitely think we've got some future. <laughs> it's critically important that we push a leftist politics in the South. I've only lived here five years. Like I have a lot to learn about the political landscape, but I just see so much potential and so much possibility and so much energy and excitement and passion. And especially something like this, like people really came together and they said no to this austerity politics and this new liberal politics and this like cutting beloved public services to like fuel some gentrification slush fund. People weren't having it. And there was a, a real appetite for that politics. Okay, so where are your ambitions turning now? We're still figuring everything out. We're kind of regrouping after the election and like taking a minute to like breathe and just figure out our next steps. But I think one thing is this millage will expire at the end of 2021. So there's going to be a fight at some point down the line of like getting the new, bill, the new millage on the ballot that continues to fully fund the, the library system. Also, we do need dedicated funding for early childhood education. Like, it's a total scam to pit those two things against each other, and it totally, like, split the, like, 
progressive and leftist community in New Orleans, and that was like its intended effect. But we do need to bring those two fights together and like fight for a fully funded library and dedicated funding for early childhood education. And I believe you elected a, a perhaps not Larry Krasner, but some kind of uh, more progressive DA as well. Oh, yeah, that was also really exciting. Yeah, this coalition was totally separate from the from the DA election. But that was also something very exciting that a more progressive DA who, yeah, it's very exciting. Louisiana has like the highest incarceration rate in the country, right? There's a lot of work to be done there. Yep, highest in the country and consequently, you know, one of the highest in the world. Then how does DSA figure into the political landscape of the city these days? I mean, that's a great question. Like, I think we have a lot to figure out. Our newer chapter, um, we have our our limitations as as a chapter. um, But we've, I think through this campaign, like really showed what we're capable of when we like all come together and like fight for something with a lot of like unity and strength and determination. And when we build a strong coalition and like lean on other organizations for support and stretch our wings a little bit, like we can really, and when we organize around something that's like widely and deeply felt like the library system, we can really get some stuff done. Any advice for people elsewhere who want to embark on similar campaigns? Um, What did you learn that you might want to share with other people? It reinforced a lot of stuff that I think a lot of folks know. I think the coalition was at the critical part, like building that big coalition was such a critical part of it. The other thing about the libraries is that everybody loves them. People love the libraries. So if you can organize around something that's beloved like that, a beloved public institution, like, you know, the postal service or the, or the library system, like people will fight for those things. That was Francis Gill, an activist with the New Orleans chapter of DSA. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another bit from one of Birthday Boy Beethoven's charming early string trios. This, the sixth movement of his Serenade Opus 8, is also performed by the Grimio Trio. Till next week, bye. Thank you.